Hi everyone, this is Darius Sulam from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers. Today we are joined by Dr. Dudley Lamming, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Recently, Dudley joined us to explain that we are more than what we eat. Sex and genetic background are important factors in observing responses to diet in mice. Let's dive in. First question I have for you here is, protein diet tends to give the feeling of more energy. Did you notice any behavioral differences in terms of overall activity level? And would you expect routine exercise to significantly change these effects? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think overall, the general idea seems to be that satiety is directly sensed but or regulated by dietary protein. And that didn't seem to correlate with activity levels very much. Now, you might expect that animals that are eating more and visiting the feeder more frequently might have additional activity as a result of that. And certainly, that's one possibility. We have noticed some shifts in feeding time. And one thing that might be interesting to look at is whether or not they're spending more time feeding in addition to having that shift. So I think that would be a good idea to, to look at and something that we could certainly do with our metabolic chambers. We do think that exercise will change some of these events. And um, we've sort of puzzled this out over a number of years because I think sort of the conventional treadmill tests might not be ideal for seeing these results just because if you run animals frequently, just like if you run a person you know, frequently, they tend to lose weight. And so that's something that we will be looking into in greater depth for perhaps for next year um, because we started doing some resistance exercise training that might better model some of the effects in humans. Okay, perfect. Thanks for that. Another question for you. Are the low and medium protein diets kept isocaloric to the control diet? Yes, they are. In our studies where we're using low, medium, and high protein diets, everything is isocaloric, fat content is identical, and so our low protein diet is actually a low protein, high carbohydrate diet, which sort of in conventional wisdom would be, you know, very unhealthy for you, but clearly in this case, the animals are, are perfectly happy and even healthier on this low protein, high carbohydrate diet. In some of our studies where we manipulate just individual amino acids, we can also keep carbohydrates fixed, keep things isonitrogenous as well by boosting the level of non-essential amino acids a bit. And so that's sort of an advantage of just manipulating one amino acid at a time. But if we do um, manipulate all the dietary protein or dietary amino acids at the same time, then it's necessary that we make that trade-off of carbohydrates. Perfect. Thank you. How exactly did or how exactly was energy expenditure measured? We used Columbus Instruments metabolic chamber system, the CLAM system. Some of our first studies were done with the traditional CLAM system, and now we're using the CLAM's HC home cage system, which I th think has some major advantages in terms of not having to put the animals in such a stressful artificial environment. We could just keep them in their home cages and sort of swap out the lids and do indirect calorimetry by measuring oxygen and CO2 consumption and production. Perfect, thank you. Question here, you may have addressed this, but if you calorically restrict a mouse but supplement with isoleucine to normal levels, do the health benefits of CR disappear? I'm gonna take that in a slightly different direction. 
So if you protein restrict an animal and you add back isoleucine alone, you blunt or eliminate most of the metabolic benefits of a protein restricted diet. So from the context of protein restriction, that isoleucine is, is not only sufficient to give you these metabolic health benefits and to extend lifespan, but it's also necessary for the metabolic benefits of a protein restricted diet. Calorie restriction is different though. So calorie restriction, we are calorie restriction maximally, you know, we usually do about 40%. We've settled on 30 as something that is probably a little bit better and healthier for the animals in terms of a lot of metabolic adaptation. And so we assume that isoleucine levels there are going to be reduced by 30% as well. And that's probably not very much compared to the 67% restriction that we do in our protein-restricted diets. When we add back branched amino acids to a calorie-restricted mouse, almost nothing happens. There's some very modest effects. And I would say that they're actually probably so small as to be biologically irrelevant. So we think that BCAAs and isoleucine contribute to the effects of protein restriction, but not necessarily the calorie restriction. Perfect. Josephine says, thank you for this great presentation. She was wondering if you performed microbiome analysis and how it changes with diet. That's a great question. So we did 16S rRNA profiling, and there are massive changes induced in the gut microbiome by either protein restriction or branched amino acid restriction. And then restricting each of the individual amino acids, branched amino acids also leads to interesting and significant changes in microbiota composition. Interestingly enough, this it appears to not mediate any of the metabolic phenotypes that we've looked at. So we did an experiment where we ablated the gut microbiome using antibiotics. And the late Jay Mitchell's laboratory did an experiment in which they tested the effects of protein restriction in germ-free mice. In both our study and Jay's study, we found that basically all of the metabolic adaptations to protein restriction still happen in the absence of a gut microbiome. There might be, Jay's lab found a little bit of effect on inflammation, and so that might be worth following up. And all of these studies were done in young animals, so you know maybe in older animals where the gut intestine might be leakier, there might be more effects of the gut microbiota. But at least so far, we found that even though there are these big microbiota changes, they don't seem to mediate a lot of the effects that we see. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that. Maybe you could comment on some reasons as to why male and female mice responded differently to, I'm guessing, the low-protein diet. Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple you know, answers that we can sort of think about. So one thing is there might be evolutionary pressures that have set up different ideal diets for both sexes. We see this in, in Drosophila. It's been shown that essentially male flies have essentially optimal health on a low-protein, high-carbohydrate diet, while female reproductivity is maximized on a high-protein, low-carbohydrate diet. And so could there be you know, something similar that's driving this in mammals? Potentially. Another issue is that in our low branch amino acid studies, we found that mTOR kinase signaling was downregulated specifically in males, but not females by branched amino acid restriction. Naively, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because we're restricting branched amino acids by the same amount in both sexes. You would expect both of those to lead to reduced activity of mTOR complex one, since that's agonized by amino acids. And then mTOR is, you know, a major regulator of metabolism and health, and it's been shown in dozens of studies that if you downregulate mTOR signaling, you get longer lifespan. 
we definitely see that there are differences in the effects of a diet on mTOR signaling in males and females. So that sort of just pushes it back one step to ask why. Why does it have these different effects in the different sexes? And that we don't know about. And so there's definitely some things that we're planning to, to look into to this. But unfortunately, a lot of the goidectomy experiments have such massive effects on metabolism by their own that probably there's not going to be a, a good way to deconvolute that. So we're still trying to think about what the best way to, to look at that might be. Awesome. Thank you so much. Metabolic certainly shakes hands with the cardiovascular system. So the next question asks, have you evaluated blood pressure or any other cardiovascular parameter in the mice fed the low protein diet? So this is an interesting one. And we've done a number of different studies. So we've looked at, at the effects of dietary protein and, and branched amino acids in both mice that have a compromised cardiovascular system, so mice that are lacking lamin A or have um, hudgens gilford progeria syndrome, as well as in aged wild-type mice. And overall, I can tell you that the effects of dietary protein are very small. That said, there seems to be some interesting issues. There seemed to be a trend in general where our protein-restricted or branched amino acid-restricted mice seem to have improved diastolic function or improved ejection fraction, but that the heart morphology changed in ways that we might think are unfavorable. But all of these changes are very, very small. And so trying to convolute that in the future might be, might be something that uh, is really worth doing. There's a number of labs that are working more closely on branched amino acid levels and cardiovascular systems. So it might be best for some of those to take it up. I will say one interesting paper by uh, Mary Latimer fairly recently at UAB showed that time of ingesting branched amino acids causes or protects from cardiac hypertrophy. So if you eat branched amino acids at a certain time during the day, the mice get cardiac hypertrophy and at other times they don't. So there might be some additional interesting complicated factors of timing to think about what the effects on a cardiovascular system might be. Awesome. Thanks so much. A terminology question. Could you explain what IWAT is? IWAT is inguinal white adipose tissue, and it's essentially a subcutaneous depot that is very good readout of browning in Beijing. And so many different stresses, including isolucent restriction, cause browning or Beijing of the inguinal white adipose tissue. None of the mouse adipose depots exactly map to the same depots in humans. But generally speaking, it's thought to be a good model for some of the fat that's uh, in people. Perfect. Another question for you. Let's sort of zoom it out to the human scale. How do you translate your preclinical finding to humans? Are any of these biomarkers useful? Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things to think about there. One of the questions, of course, is can you protein restrict or isoleucine restrict humans? And the answer is, of course, you can. You know, one of the things that we have done is look in the USDA food database, and it's certainly true that uh, just as bodybuilders have suspected for a long time that turkey meat is relatively low in branched amino acids, and emo is even lower, but of course less accessible. So people who were eating turkey on Thanksgiving probably were ingesting a relatively low isoleucine meal. So kudos to you. But how is that going to be enough to lead to beneficial metabolic changes? It's unclear probably depends how long we're talking about as well. We've done a one pilot study and two groups in Europe have done pilot studies of branched amino acid restriction using medical food that doesn't have branched amino acids in it. There are some limitations to that. Um, it's a powder-based food, so you have to consume it as a drink. 
doesn't necessarily taste all that good no matter what you do to it. But it's certainly feasible to restrict branched amino acids in that manner. And it's been associated in a couple of small studies now with improved insulin sensitivity. Of course, if we find out some of the mechanisms here, maybe we can make drugs that directly engage that mechanism or drugs that interfere with branched amino acid uptake or catabolism or speed up catabolism. And many people are, are looking at these as different possibilities. There's also a possibility, one study showed that gut bacteria, depending on how much BCAA transporters they express, they can actually lower blood levels of branched amino acids in people. And so that could be another potential probiotic route for uh, translation. In terms of biomarkers, you know, we could certainly measure blood levels of branched amino acids. They are sensitive to diet. And so I would say that might be one possibility. But of course, you know, measuring things like HOMA IR or insulin sensitivity via other mechanisms might be a sort of short term way of determining if we are effectively restricting branch amino acid levels. Perfect. That's always a question when we have findings like these. What are the potential effects or what are the potential opportunities to translate to humans? Have you looked at this phenomenon in hibernating animals that have higher brown adipose tissue than mice and rats? Well, it's an interesting question. No, I mean, certainly um, there are people I hear at the University of Wisconsin work with ground squirrels, so that could be something that we could examine. I'm not sure exactly uh, what type of, what their dietary needs are and how we might have to adjust some of our standard diets that work in mice for that, but that's an interesting point. And certainly increasing bat activity in a hibernating animal might not necessarily be a good thing because they might burn through more fuel more quickly and maybe maybe not make it through the hibernating period, but maybe that wouldn't happen. So I think uh, that's a very interesting question. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.